In terms of trauma, seeing how people present themselves and whether they change or don't change dependent upon their belief can be transformational for some people or can be an absolute roadblock for others. It's the framework of belief that can change somebody's experience. And those beliefs are obviously bound throughout childhood and those early emotional experiences. So the impactful experience of trauma and how that changes someone's perspective of the world can radically change how they move and how they experience life today. Today, I'm talking nerdy with Dan Carter about the impact of trauma on your physical, mental, and emotional health. In this conversation, we'll dive into the difference between big T trauma and little t trauma, how the experience of childhood trauma shapes our beliefs and behaviors as adults, and what it takes to cultivate nervous system resilience in order to heal and move forward. Dan Carter has been coaching for 13 years while also running regular education workshops and programs for gyms, studios, personal trainers, and allied health professionals in the areas of strength, functional movement, mindset, and nutrition. He has created and facilitated professional development workshops to gyms all over Australia, as well as learning and sharing with industry leaders across the globe. Dan is the founder and head coach of Revamp Integrated Health, specializing in combining traditional wisdom with a personalized, evidence-informed approach across the pillars of movement, insight, and nutrition. Sensitive listeners should be advised that this episode will dive into some trauma-related concepts. Before you dive in, I would love it if you could hit pause and leave us a five-star review and a written review on whatever platform you're listening on. In doing so, you help get this podcast into the ears and brains of more listeners like you. Welcome to Talk Nerdy to Me, Dan Carter. Dan and I met at a gym in Brisbane, Australia, and the very first conversation that we had was about glucocorticoid receptors and the HPA axis. And I immediately knew, even though the podcast had not been birthed at that point in time, I knew that Dan was someone that I eventually wanted to have on, I think more than most people that I've met, he's a really, really fervent student and a phenomenal teacher. So, Dan, thank you so much for coming on and being willing to talk nerdy to me. Thanks for inviting me. I'm excited. So I guess a good place to begin would be with your personal journey. Where did you get started in the health and wellness space? So I've been a coach now for 13 years. So 2009, 2010, I was looking for something to do outside of the career that I was in. So I was working in security at the time, um, nightclubs, but then I decided I wanted to take on a day job. So I went and got my personal training certifications. And from there, I decided whether I was going to either be a personal trainer or whether I was going to fall back on the trade that I'd already had. So I went and you know, did the secure thing for a while. I was a diesel mechanic by trade and then during that time, I decided I was going to join the army. So that was the secure choice. Went and joined the army, served with them for five years. And during that time, obviously, lots of training, lots of sports, lots of activity and sustained a few injuries as well. So ended up injuring my ankle and my back, my elbow, a few different things. And it was during that time where I started to seek out external physiotherapy and understanding of human movement to complement my training and to heal me. And then I just found this real passion for 
healing and for understanding movement and function of the body. So once I decided that I was going to leave the army, I thought my next step was getting back into the personal training. And then I really decided to just hone in on the rehab space and on functional movement and getting people away from pain, healing from injury and getting them functional again. So that led me to a job in a physio studio or physiotherapy studio in Miranda in southern New South Wales. And I was there for two and a half years. And it was during that time that I learned everything I could about human movement and the career has just exploded from there. Amazing. And how did that eventually transition into a focus more on the mental, emotional components of health and wellness as well, and not purely the physical? So that answer is kind of twofold. Firstly is my own personal experience. And then it was the experience that I had with clients. So for myself, um, I was dealing with lifelong depression. And so once I left the army, I decided to seek counseling um, and go through psychology. I was experiencing quite a a heavy depression after splitting with my um, fiance at the time. And it was from that, that I obviously delved into my own psyche and it was recommended to me at the time by a colleague of mine that I explore the Parshna meditation concordantly with the psychology. So I ended up doing the Vipassana meditation retreat, which was absolutely transformational. Some of the experiences I had on that first retreat just opened my eyes to a whole new world. And I can literally say that when I came back to work afterwards, that colors were brighter. It had changed my whole perspective. So obviously being a forever student, I decided to learn more and more about psychology and about what was going on with me. And I delved into a whole bunch of work with my psychologist, understanding, you know, the etiology of my own mental illness and my experience. And that led me down a path of multiple different diagnoses and understanding deeper into my own health, into my own experience, into my own head and what was happening. And then trying to sift through some of these labels that I was given and what they actually meant to me. So on the other side of that comes, you know, the education of you know psychology and how it impacts human behavior so seeing that with my clients and seeing how they were showing up in the gym obviously i was dealing with people with a whole range of different injuries back problems shoulder problems um, knee problems and then trying to help some of these people starting to understand functional movement coming from the perspective of if someone has a lower back pain Yes, it could be a physical thing. We can talk about, you know, discology and, you know, spine mechanics and core control. But then, of course, once we start to talk about core control, we have to talk about the mechanics of the breath. And then with the breath comes, are we using our diaphragm effectively? Or if we're not using our diaphragm effectively, are we just anxiously breathing? So some of these symptoms like anxiety are actually more linked to the physical components of the functional movement. So then I started to piece together how back pain was happening and how some of these fluid mechanics were affecting my clients' experiences as well. So reading more into the mental state of some of my clients and why they were showing up into the gym or into our training sessions the way they were and how that was affecting them. And then learning deeper from some of my colleagues in the industry about the impacts and the the frameworks from traditional Chinese medicine to functional movement to psychology and how someone isn't necessarily any one of these things 
but they come in as an entire system that works perfectly with itself. So we have to treat a person as a person and not necessarily as a label or as a diagnosis. As an injured shoulder or a funky knee or whatever it may be. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, my background was in teaching yoga and meditation for almost 10 years. And I think where I was able to have a lot of these observations was in the fact that our mind is not just this function of our brain that's happening exclusively between our two ears, but for every thought that we think and emotion that we experience, there's a very real physiological, biological, but also physical reaction that we have to whatever it is that's going on between our two ears. And communication between the mind and the body works in two ways, not just one. And so our physical patterns are something that really intricately affects the way we're thinking, the way that we're feeling. And our mental emotional patterns can subsequently affect our physical body. But I know that one of the experiences that we can have that really impacts both of those things dramatically is the experience of trauma. And I know that that's what we're going to be diving into in greater depth today. So I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about where that specifically started to emerge as something you could see would be really helpful and effective to work with within your clients. Yeah, absolutely. And you're 100% right because you can see the change in people's posture when they feel differently, right? And that can change either their spine mechanics, the fluid mechanics of the breath and the lymph and their blood. They can change how they obviously hold themselves up in the world. They can change the length tension relationships around musculature and how they move. So understanding someone's mental and emotional state, one, once you're trained in it, can become fairly obvious. But two is also really impactful in changing not just the movement, but how they experience the session and then how they walk out of the gym and then obviously into their daily life as well. So we start to incorporate some of these practices into the other 160 hours of the week. So you might spend eight hours of the week going to the gym or going towards whatever exercise you want to do and then doing the exercise and then coming home. There's another 160 hours of the week there where you're moving and you're communicating and you're experiencing life and that also comes into play as well so in terms of trauma seeing how people present themselves and whether they change or don't change dependent upon their belief can be transformational for some people or can be an absolute roadblock for others it's the framework of belief that can change somebody's experience. And those beliefs are obviously bound throughout childhood and those early emotional experiences. So the impactful experience of trauma and how that changes someone's perspective of the world can radically change how they move and how they experience life today. That makes a lot of sense. Can you define trauma for listeners? Because I know that it's something that's being talked about, especially on social media lately. And I think overused and used as a way to deflect personal responsibility at times. So I'm curious if you can give listeners a really clear definition of what it is. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a buzzword at the moment. Trauma can be kind of broken down into two ways. Obviously, we have you know, what we call big T trauma. It's the, the catastrophic experiences, the big things. 
it might be the assaults, the abuse, the you know, the emotional abuse, the sexual assault, anything that is obviously life-changing and traumatic. We also have what we call little t trauma, which are the significant emotional events that happen to us where we create meaning out of at events where our needs were deemed. So the little microtransgressions that we experience during childhood where we might feel abandoned, where we might feel alone, where we might have felt like we weren't loved or safe or cared for in some way. Now, it's part of the human experience, of course, that this is going to happen to almost everybody because our parents are obviously dealing with a whole bunch of other things as well. They've got their own experiences happening. They've got financial stresses a lot of the time. They might have, you know, distractions. We might have older siblings or younger siblings that need our parents' attention. So at some point in time, our needs aren't going to be met. But if that creates some sort of emotional wounding or injury that we create meaning out of, then that can contribute to our little t trauma. I don't want people to hear the word trauma and then reject the concept because they didn't experience something that in the scheme of the world might not sound significant, the big T trauma. I want people to take on board that everybody has this human experience where at some point in time, our needs weren't met and we learnt lessons of abandonment, of mistrust, of you know, coping mechanisms around perfectionism and needing to perform in order to receive love and care and affection. These are the things that build up into the little T trauma, which shape our behaviors, our beliefs, our experiences later on in life. So I want to make sure I am reiterating this correctly, both for myself and also for listeners. Big T trauma is a result of an experience that we have where we truly feel like our life is in danger, as opposed to little t trauma being a series or maybe an isolated experience where the meaning that we make from it is the thing that ultimately results in the formation of belief patterns and cognitive patterns that can subsequently impact our ability to change or not change, grow or not grow over the course of our lives. Is that correct? Absolutely. It's any sort of experience where we felt like we weren't safe for some reason. Why do you think we make meaning? Because it seems like in terms of little t trauma, that is the big issue, right? Because we can have these experiences where we feel certain emotions and not make stories or narratives up around them. And I know that that's just a part of the human experience. We are meaning-making machines, but I'm curious why you think that is, that we'd even do that in the first place. That's a really good question. Why we make meaning? I think we make meaning because of our need for familiarity and certainty. That familiarity and certainty means we can predict the environment that we're living in. And if we can predict the environment, it means we're safe. We know where to go. We know when to go there. We know where we can get food, where we can get shelter, where we can meet our deeper physiological needs and then meet those higher order needs if we're looking at Maslow's hierarchy, for example. So in that 
childhood experience, we are completely defenseless and we need to be able to trust our caregivers to meet our needs. So we need to interpret all the signals, all the emotions, all the experiences in one way or another so that we can start to build the patterns and behaviors that is going to keep us safe later on. And how does that experience of not having our needs met in childhood differ from the little T trauma that we might experience as adults? During the first anywhere between 7 and 11 years of life, we are so plastic in our brains. Obviously, you've spoken about neuroplasticity. And we are picking up the information from the world around us and incorporating that into our framework, into our beliefs, into our perspectives, into what we believe to be true, right? Once those beliefs are set in place at a certain point in time and we've developed to the point where we have identified ourselves as a separate individual to the family unit, then in NLP, they talk about the development of the critical faculty. It's a framework to understand that some of these beliefs are basically just installed in us from a very early age. And at some point in time, we develop the capacity to reject beliefs or reject information as well. So some information will come into our understanding and we can start to discern what we believe to be true or what confirms our beliefs versus what we can reject because we don't believe that to be true. So we become independent of our own thought so that we can start to understand the world around us and, again, shape our experiences and provide ourselves with safety. That makes a lot of sense. In the world of hypnotherapy or yoga nidra, we refer to that window of time where we're extremely vulnerable as the brain being highly suggestible. So if you think about, you know, those old school movies where there's a hypnotist, right? And they're telling these people to like cluck around like a chicken or whatever. There's no conscious filter that can accept or reject whatever is being told. And from a brain perspective, you know, when we're in the first few years of life, our brainwave state is such that we're almost in this trance-like, highly suggestible space where we don't have the filter in place to say, no, I don't subscribe to that, or yes, I do. I think where this gets really complex is when we have belief systems in place as adults and then subsequently cognitive biases that want to reaffirm those belief systems and will result in patterns of behavior that only further perpetuate it. So I'm curious what you think is required for somebody to actually begin healing from little t trauma and truly begin to change because our biology is compelling us just to continue participating in the same patterns of thinking, feeling, moving. So what does it take to begin to change that? Awareness precedes change. We need to understand what we believe and why we believe that in order for us to start to address it. So we need to start to question these things. And I liken it, and the reason I liken it to movement is because the whole body works the same way. We are all driven by the brain. All movement is neurological, right? We are all just a bundle of habits and behaviors driven by neurological impulses. 
Okay. So with that in mind, we need to understand that all behaviors, all beliefs, and all of these actions that we take, whether they're conscious or subconscious, have at some point in time been completely adaptive and helpful for us. They've solved the problem. Okay. So what I mean by that is if you go and see a personal trainer, you go and see one of the coaches that I've trained in uh, movement restoration or something like that, you should be taken through a movement screen. And in that movement screen, we'll start to identify compensatory movement patterns. Maybe you can't stabilize during a lunge or you drop your body forward during a squat or you can't get quite deep enough for the standard of the screen in a squat position or something like that. Maybe you can't reach overhead at this point in time. The reason we identify that is because we need to understand what's blocking that position, what's stopping you from moving into that space. Maybe there's a restriction in a certain joint or maybe there's an instability but the compensation of the movement pattern that you make has solved that problem for you so far in order to move you forward and do whatever you want to do. So for example, if you're moving into a lunge and let's say your knee drops inwards towards the midline of the body, we would call that a medial knee and that could lead over time to dysfunction or the wrong tissues being loaded in the wrong space, which could potentially over time lead to the potential for injury. Is that coming from the knee? Probably not. It's a compensation for a maybe a restriction in the hip or a restriction in the ankle or an instability in the foot or the hip itself, right? So all these compensations have solved the problem of the restriction or instability. So in the same way, because we're adaptive creatures, our habits and behaviors and beliefs have all been formed in order to compensate for either where we're lacking, where we were hurt, what beliefs we've formed early on so that we can move through the world. So with that in mind, once we start to understand what some of our behaviors are and what some of our beliefs are, we can start to unravel not just why they're there or the particular event that caused them, but what's really important is addressing how is this serving me? What is this doing for me? What is this achieving? So for example, let's say I'm procrastinating on a task that I want to do. That procrastination might be serving the purpose of protecting me neurologically and emotionally from a fear of success, from a fear of failure, from a fear of judgment, from a fear of being seen. So instead of doing the work that I need to do, I procrastinate and I might not do the task, which means I keep myself emotionally safe. So the first step would be awareness, which we can start to cultivate through looking at the areas of our life where we feel like there are patterns of behavior that are causing us distress or pain or even emotionally. Would you say that that's a good place to begin? Absolutely. You need to identify, you know, what are these patterns? What do I want to change first? If we take on another NLP concept, um, Robert Diltz, I think he was in the 60s, came up with this pattern called logical levels of change. So on the bottom rung of these levels is the environment. So we can change somebody's environment or we can invite them to change the environment, but that might not mean that they change too much of their behaviors or their beliefs. 
But if we start to change somebody's behaviors, let's say we invite them to change their routine, they might even change the environment. If we invite them to educate themselves and learn new skills, well, then they're probably going to change their routines anyway, and they may change their environment, being the people that they hang around and all that sort of stuff. Now, once we start to get past the skills, we can invite them to change their beliefs because once we've learned a new skill, no man steps in the same river twice because he's not the same man and it's not the same river. So once we've changed somebody's belief and they start to address some of these deeper beliefs, well, then they're going to have new skills available to them, which is, of course, going to change their routines and change their environment. So, for example, in my early 20s, and especially when I was in the army, I used to drink and I used to party and all that sort of stuff. But now that I identify as a health coach and I have changed and shifted not just my identity, but my beliefs around health because I've learned new skills and that's invited me to change my routines, which has created more health for me, which has reinforced the shift in environment. And I've basically created a cascading effect from identity all the way back down to how I experience life. Something that I want to point out in what you just shared is this concept of identity. And I'm curious in your experience, what you think goes into the formulation of that are our identities and our perception of ourselves, just a formulation of our belief systems as well. We're asking the big questions. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting in there. <laughs> what creates identity? Because it seems like that could potentially be the most problematic set of beliefs that we could or could not have. You know, I know that in my own experience, when I was first tackling my depression, my anxiety, the messaging that I received from my caretakers, from my parents when I was growing up was, this is just the way that you are. This is just the way that we are. Like everybody in my family is on Prozac. Everybody <laughs> is depressed. So the messaging that I got was, well, this is just what my life is going to be, you know, and for me having that moment, having somebody introduce me to the concept of neuroplasticity where I had that kind of light bulb of what do you mean that this isn't what my life has to look like? This isn't the person that I have to be was just this total paradigm shift. Absolutely. Yeah. So back to my original question, I'm curious what you think goes into the formation of identity. Well, that reminds me of Carol Dweck's work in the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset. All of this starts in childhood, our formulation of identity. So because we are, like I said, defenseless and we rely on other people, we start to take on the labels that other people give us. Our first identification of self is as somebody's child and then as somebody's, maybe somebody's sibling somebody's friend and then maybe there's a judgment attached to that maybe i'm a good child or a bad child maybe i'm a disobedient child or maybe i'm you know whatever experience or label that i've been given being told by not just my caregivers but the people who are really shaping those behaviors and spending as much time in my environment so you know my teachers my friends at school as i grow up i'm starting to relate to people in the context of who am i to these people, not who am I? We don't have a separate self for so many years. And it's only in that 
understanding that we are a separate person, that can, we can really understand who we are and what drives us and what are our beliefs and why are they there and do they serve us. There's this concept in the world of psychology called the looking glass self-concept, which basically upholds that part of what formulates our sense of self is the perception of how we assume or can project that others may potentially see us. So that makes a lot of sense. I don't know if you could see me here behind the microphone, but I was pursing my lips as you were saying a lot of the examples from childhood because I feel like those were so many of the misbeliefs around my identity that I had to work through and that I'm still working through, that I'm disobedient, that I'm not a good daughter, that I'm, you know, not a good friend or, you know, whatever it may be. Mm, especially with the neurodivergent experience. So in the context of trauma, let's say there is a childhood emotional inconsistency. So what I mean by that is as a child, we might be, you know, anywhere between the ages of zero or even prenatal through to, you know, adolescence. If we exist in an emotionally unstable environment, we learn very quickly that we need to change who we are in order to placate the energy of other people in order to try and keep us safe. So if we have an inconsistent or an unpredictable caregiver, we learn very quickly that we need to change ourselves in order to stay safe. So if my, let's say my parent comes home and they are angry, they might be livid because they've had a terrible day at work and they're starting to bring that rage or that energy into the environment. Well, then I learn to either match or mirror their state or I might, you know, um, shut myself down and reserve myself in order to keep me safe. And that continues through childhood, obviously, the more consistent that emotional instability in the environment is. So we start to change how we present to the world and we lose our sense of self in the context of keeping ourselves safe because survival is obviously an underlying factor and the main motivator over some of these higher order functions like self-identification and self-expression. Something that I have seen in quite a few of my clients, especially there are a few women specifically that I'm thinking of that I work with that are these extremely high performing, high achieving, CEO level entrepreneurs. And oftentimes they come to me with nervous system burnout or struggling with work life balance and having time boundaries in place around when they're working, when they're not, how to truly shut off. And what I see in a lot of them is that without these patterns of behavior, they don't really know who they are. They're not a good CEO. They're not a good employee. They're not a good entrepreneur. They're not a good person if they're not overachieving, striving, always have to be the best, never shut down, never step away from their phone, never have boundaries, whatever it may be. So I'm curious what you think someone can do when they encounter that feeling of, instability in their sense of self when they're starting to make some of these changes? We need to consider the Eastern philosophy and de-identify with some of these behaviors and thoughts and actions. We need to understand that you are not any of these labels because 
if you were not a CEO, who would you be? If you were not a mother, who would you be? You would still exist. If you were not a father, if you were not a brother, if you were not your name even, these are all labels that have been given to you. In the same way that when you sense something, you are not that object. You are the person perceiving the sense. In the same way that when you're speaking, you're not speaking your words. You didn't come up with this language. You were taught this language, and that language has shaped your perception of the environment. So you are not the label, just like the rest of the environment isn't the label either. So if we can start to dissociate from that and realize that we are the observer of these items, we are the observer of the thoughts and the sensations and the behaviors, we are the person who acts these things out as an act, as a persona or a person, well then we can start to separate ourselves. It's still a useful tool. I still need to go to work and I still need to pay bills and I still need to do the things I do. But I also understand that if that label wasn't there, I'm still who I am underneath all that. I'm the essence of that person. So once we start to understand that and really embody that, we can start to separate from the pressures that these labels give us, which I think is a really important step. I think so too. And I also know that something that you like to speak on and teach on is the necessity and importance of being able to label in some facets of our emotional experience and our cognitive experience as a way to ultimately detach from that. And I'm curious if you can speak more to the reason why labeling can be so helpful and important as a tool to ultimately disassociate from that identity or from that label in the first place. In a couple of different ways, because our experience is so vast and it's so expansive that it's really difficult for us to take in our entire experience and explain that and connect with somebody else without the use of language and words and labels. There's utility in it. But we need to see it as a tool for what it is. Once we start to identify with that label is where it becomes problematic. Right? So I was diagnosed for a long time with depression because... According to the DSM-5, I had a certain cluster of symptoms for more than 14 days. So therefore, I am this symptom cluster. But that didn't explain the root cause of what I was experiencing. It didn't explain any of my experience. All it explained was that I was presenting with some symptoms. In the same way, a lot of these diagnoses and these labels can pigeonhole us into a subset of experiences which doesn't explain who we really are. The problem with that is I start to say with other people and especially with my therapist or my doctor or whoever I'm speaking with, the professional, I start to say, I am depressed. I am anxious. I'm not any of these things. I am who I am and I also experience symptoms of depression which we've defined as this cluster. And that could be coming from a whole bunch of different factors. We could talk about, you know, trauma that we've experienced. It could, we could talk about heartbreak. We can talk about the impact of nutrition. And, you know, maybe we are hypo or hypermethylating through the liver. 
which is going to affect things. Maybe we're experiencing mold exposure. You know, maybe we, you know, have a loss of purpose. Maybe we've got seasonal affective disorder and a lack of vitamin D. Maybe I've got high prolactin, which is affecting my ability to create dopamine. Um, there's a whole bunch of different factors here that could be leading to my experience, but the label of depression is now almost useless in that sense, but the utility in it is understanding it so that we can use it as a method of investigation. We can use it as a tool to understand the right treatment. So for example, someone who might be diagnosed with borderline personality disorder, quite often, if we were to ask this person to participate in cognitive behavioral therapy, it can be quite invalidating and reinforcing of some of the beliefs that they have, which is going to exacerbate their symptoms and their problems. Whereas if we understand that it's borderline personality disorder and this is their symptoms and the etiology of those symptoms, we might guide them toward dialectical behavior therapy instead, which might be and hopefully will be much more effective for the treatment of that person. I was thinking about in the context of trauma, I know from neuroscience perspective that one of the things that can happen when someone is experiencing trauma is a symptom called alexithemia, which basically entails their language centers going offline. So being able to label and identify and give words to the experiences that we're having or have had can be a really important role in moving the brain forward out of a free state. And I think it's so important not to get stuck there just in the labeling and the identifying, because that's something I see quite often in in my work as well, is an attachment to the identity of the victim or an attachment to the identity of the person that is experiencing all of these issues. And especially in the depth of the experience, if you're in a crisis state, like you said, we aren't able to express ourselves. Like Broca's area quite often literally shuts down. So we're not able to express effectively with words. So I've had this discussion on are you okay day quite often where when you ask someone if they're okay, quite often they cannot. They are incapable and then they judge themselves for being incapable of sharing their experience, which further reinforces the belief that they're alone. So it can be quite problematic for some people even just asking them, are you okay, on a specific day of the year. Understanding that, we can also use the tools of language to ramp up activity in certain areas and certain pathways of the brain so that we can tone down the experience in other areas and make sense of them. So the separation of emotion, instead of saying, I am depressed, or, you know, heaven forbid, we're going towards a suicidality and other extreme crisis states, we can use language to start to regain control of our experience and start to separate from the emotionality of it. Mel Robbins talks about using the 54321 technique, which is just creating that space from the crisis itself where we use that language in order to create control. That makes a lot of sense. So circling back to one of the questions I asked you so long ago before we started diving into identity and childhood experiences and all these things, do you think that it's actually possible for someone to fully heal and recover from 
childhood trauma, especially when it's little t and it's something that they've been exposed to over an extended period of time, like a more chronic exposure to needs not being met? It's a good question because it depends on what you mean by heal. And what I mean by that is I like to talk with people about the integration of the new state. I've got a scar on my hand that I only really bring up in conversations like this, where I fell off the back of the truck that I was servicing when I was 17 as an apprentice. And it's still a scar. I've still got scar tissue, but the only time I really notice it is when I have conversations like this. It is healed and it is integrated, but it's still a part of me. It's, there's still some scar tissue there. There's still a memory that that happened, but I don't identify with that. There's no emotional attachment to that state. There's no reaction to that state. So my nervous system doesn't have to prepare or protect from any sort of threat and reignite that pathway for anxiety and protection. So my HBA access is completely irrelevant in this case. So in the same way, when it comes to little t trauma and some of these beliefs and behaviors and reactions that we've had and some of the coping mechanisms that we've adapted and adopted along the way in response to those experiences, once we start to accept that they are part of us and they're part of our experience, but they no longer have power over us, we can start to retrain the nervous system that we are in the present moment as an adult and we can take care of ourselves. We are no longer in that childhood state of threat and abandonment or whatever happened to us. IFS, so internal family systems, does a lot of work in this space. And I think the somatic approach to this in terms of using movement as a means to expose the nervous system to new and novel experiences in terms of safety is really, really powerful. So I want to go back to something that you said that we also referenced at the very, very beginning of this episode because it was a part of our very first conversation together, but that I don't think listeners have been introduced to on this podcast, which is the HPA axis. And for anybody that's listening, HPA stands for hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and it's essentially your nervous system's way to kind of jumpstart your body's stress response and the release of adrenaline and cortisol. So when Dan is talking about not evoking an HPA axis response, what he's essentially saying is that it's possible to recall the memory of falling off of the back of the truck without his body, his nervous system going into fight, flight, freeze. So it seems like if we're zooming way out, there's the potential for us to continue to have the memory of the experiences that we've had without any emotional reaction, without any reactivity. So the experience can still be there, but we don't get stuck around it. We don't have a reaction that's disproportionate to the safety that we're experiencing at this moment in time. Does that sound about right? That is 100% accurate. Alex, the way you said that really well is that there can still be emotional gravity to this. I can talk about my father because he passed away when I was 15 from cancer. So I lived through that experience and that was quite impactful for me. 
So when I do talk about that, of course, there's going to be a level of commiseration and grief and, you know, memory and emotional impactfulness. But just because I can be emotional doesn't necessarily mean that I enter into a stress response and a heightened sympathetic state in order to protect myself. It's just the fact that that's a pretty shitty experience for a child to go through. And at 15 years of age, that sucked a little bit. So I can still be sad about that, but I don't necessarily need to protect myself from anything. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So you also mentioned previously when we were talking about the logical levels of change, that learning a new skill set is something that can be really important and effective, that we can also change our behaviors or change our environment. I'm curious if you think that there's anything else that's required or helpful in order to move our nervous systems into that non-reactive, non-panic state when we're recalling memories of past experiences or triggered. I'm using air quotes, but triggered because that's a buzzword right now as well. (laughs) It's such a buzzword. And look, it's appropriate. You know, we are triggered by certain events. And I think it's important to understand the trigger itself, co-regulation is huge. It's so important to be able to co-regulate with a safe person when we are triggered, when we are experiencing that heightened emotional state. The goal of co-regulation is self-regulation. So quite often when we went through these experiences as children, we needed someone to co-regulate and we didn't have that experience. That experience was robbed from us because our caregivers with whom we should have co-regulated were absent. And this is the feeling of abandonment that can quite often be impactful later on. So if we never learned how to co-regulate, well, then our nervous system has never learned how to regulate itself. So later on, learning those skills and doing so in the presence of a safe person is not just impactful, I think is absolutely inescapable. Something that I reference a lot with my clients because I notice in a lot of the super perfectionistic high performers, high achievers, is that there's a belief that I should be able to do this alone. I should be able to do this by myself. And what I always like to tell them is that most of our issues come from experiences that we've had interpersonally. So finding some support along the way, I think, is essential for pretty much everybody in order to move forward at some point with something that we're stuck around. Just to point out, the power of language is important. And we do. We criticize ourselves for not being able to do the things we expect ourselves to do. And Peter Crone puts it really well. We should all over ourselves. This should concept is a complete hallucination and it was passed down to us, again, by our caregivers, by our parents, and by the people who've expected things of us as children. You should have gotten those extra marks. You shouldn't act this way. You shouldn't have done that. You should do this. You should be better at that. That's a hallucination. It doesn't exist. It never happened. So I'd like to invite, you know, my clients to have what Peter Crone says is an intimate relationship with reality. Let's see things as they are. In the Buddhist or the Pali script, they talk about the concept of yatabuddha, which is as it is. So the should that doesn't exist, let's leave it as an idea and let's really witness things as they are 
which gives us power to act in the future concordant to which whatever we want to achieve. Not as we would like it to be. I can hear Asangawanka, his words like ringing through my head, who is the facilitator of those Vipassana meditation retreats that Dan was referencing in the beginning. So, Dan, if somebody wanted to be supported by you with their body, with their mind, with whatever it may be, where do you think the best place is for them to learn more about you and the work that you're doing? So I'm working with clients online as well as face-to-face. We like to start to understand what's happening with the gut and the mind and the body because they all interplay with each other. I was talking about nutrition earlier and the impact of it, and, and it could be a key to some of our experiences. So I'm on Instagram, Functional Executive. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Um, just look up my name or Peak Executive Performance, um, and you guys will also be able to visit the website. You'll be go.revamphealth.com.au forward slash revitalize. And the links to all of those things are going to be in the show notes. And Dan, do you have any other programs or offerings that are coming up that everyone should know about? The online program is just the comprehensive way to really recalibrate who you are in your experience. We look at nutrition. We look at the state of your blood test in terms of functional state. We look at how you've formulated some of these beliefs and behaviors, and we really start to recalibrate your values. And we work together over the term of a a few months to really start to create the life that you want to have in the future. Amazing. Is there any final word of wisdom that you would like to leave listeners with before we close out for the day? One thing I would really like to share is the power of parasympathetic breath. So breathing out longer than you're breathing in can be really important in recalibrating your nervous system towards that rest and digest parasympathetic state can be super impactful. Another link I'll give you will be a guided meditation for what we call the midbrain prime. It's a really powerful way to just get into a state of understanding that right now in this very moment, you are safe. And once you understand that all your needs are met right now, wherever you are, you can start to really take back some power in how you approach your experience of the world. Amazing. Thank you so, so much for sharing all of that with us. And thank you for teaching me today. I feel like I've learned so much from you and I'm really grateful that you came on to talk nerdy to me. No, thanks for the info. I really appreciate it. Big fun. If you loved this episode, help us get it into the ears and brains of more listeners like you by sharing it on social media. When you share on Instagram, make sure you tag me at Alex underscore Nashton. Instagram is also the best place to send me your questions about the episode material and make requests for future topics and guests. New episodes of Talk Nerdy to Me drop every single Wednesday. When you hit subscribe, you'll be notified of new releases so you never have to miss one. Last but not least, this podcast baby would not be possible without Adam Russell. Adam, I am so grateful to have had your support in creating this podcast. Thank you for always being willing to talk nerdy to me.